The first follower is what transforms a lone nut into a leader. It's it's pulling about 90% of the weight right now. Just so. say it then. <laughs> what are you holding back? The procrastinator's brain also has an instant gratification monkey. This baby hits 88 miles per hour. To generate the 1.21 see some serious shit. It's going to be the Nate Marie, the Nate Marie method or Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be the mic. So taking some time, yeah, just to reflect and journal and read and that's awesome. How's Prepare it going for so fatherhood? Far? It's good. I've been doing some hiking. I've been doing a lot of reading, some writing and some meditation. And it's, I mean, it, it, this place is bonkers. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. So the, That's so the canyon amazing. is like, wait, just right over the ledge there. Dude. And this is like a little studio apartment. <laughs> it's, it's insane. I am not jealous at all. It's snowing outside. <laughs> that's amazing this is like this podcasting thing is so great though because i mean i just brought my stand on my mic and you know just that xlr converter thing and like ready oh, to roll oh yeah you had that you have that portable one because i was just thinking if i were to do the same thing it's still pretty good but the interface yeah you have that sure uh xlr mine yeah. is a little bigger and a little heavier but still like it can be it can all be fit inside a bag and it's quite portable. I feel like I need a, a little like ledge for my laptop. I feel it's strange when you have a different setup, just like, how yeah. like you know, I'm like looking down and I don't really, I can't really fix this. So that's all right. You don't have a second um, monitor. I'm guessing, right? I do not know. Does that make you more productive? Not having it kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that too. Cause sometimes I go to the living room and do some work there. I don't obviously don't have my monitor in another room and I find myself to be more productive. That's the pool guy. I have a pool, pool guy, guy there. <laughs> Living the dream. That's awesome. Drinking coconut so, water. Yeah. Have you, <laughs> have you taken the few days off of work? Yeah. I took yeah. Wednesday through Friday off. I mean, the crazy thing is, is this is the first time Allie and I have been apart in a year and it's just kind of a weird, like, you know, and not even apart, but just like, you know, basically sitting in the same house together for a year. And so it was, it was a little strange. Like she, she was okay with me coming here and we had talked about it a lot, but I think just that she hasn't like spent a night alone, you know, since the pandemic has been, it was just like a yeah. weird, like feeling, I guess, to, to kind of get over. Have you had any epiphanies since you, since you've gone there? Any, any no, interesting thoughts? I'll say one thing came to mind the other day. It was, so I've been planning this thing out and it feels really selfish and kind of like, why the fuck do I need to do this? And what, what, <laughs> you know, like, is this really a mask for just, you know, having some time alone? But I, and part of it maybe is that a little bit, but I think when I started thinking about this a lot more, you know how if you're ever having a stressful day or you're just feeling like shit and the cliche line is for someone to whisper in your ear and say, just take a deep breath and think of like your happy place. And, you know, you, obviously you can do this yourself, but like the idea is I was trying to intentionally create some space in my mind for this, to create this environment that when I am a father and I'm in a stressful situation, I'm, I'm kind of like pre-planning this 
this weekend to be like this happy place of this transition to fatherhood that I can look back on in the future in this and say, like, you know, just know why you're doing this. Like you took this time off, like your, your mindset was trying to be kind of transformed and to think differently about what are your priorities. And it's sort of like, I'm planning ahead to do that. So I can reflect later, you know, in the future and say like, yeah, that was, that weekend was like really important to kind of like my, shift my mindset and transform. And so now that I'm like here I'm in, 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 a, I feel like I'm self-aware enough to think about that in the moment that I'm really trying to make use of all this time. And so I've been reading a lot of writing about being a father. I've been trying to reflect on like what it means to be a good dad. And, you know, so all, all of that is really, it took like, you know, 18 hours to kind of like, okay, this is really important. I need to make the most of it. So that's really cool. What really stands out to me from what you described is uh, like the intentionality of what you've decided to do and almost like creating that future thought or thinking about it uh, beforehand and creating this experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's you know, maybe I'm making a big deal out of it, but I, I think I've talked to a lot of fathers who had not done this. And they're kind of like, holy shit, I should have, I should have done that. Like, I never really thought of like making some time alone. And I keep, I kind of, I'm maybe doing it out of fear a little bit. Like I had this fear that I would be doing my everyday life, working mm. at a job on the last day and then having a baby the next day. And my life has completely changed. And I don't know what happened. And I missed an opportunity to kind of like slow down and stop. So that's like the whole intent behind this, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, even for like switching, switching jobs, right? Between jobs, mm -hmm. you 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 want to take some time off to reflect and yeah, that's on what happened, on what went well, what didn't go well, how, what do you want to do differently in the next job? So I think this is an this is another sort of um, milestone in someone's life, and it's a big one, right? It's some yeah. something like jobs you probably have switched a couple in the past, or you know what it's going to be like yep. working with a new team, but this is like someone else is coming to this world and you have the full responsibility for making sure they're okay and taking care of them. So that's, that's huge. I think it's, it's another transition, like you said. So I think it deserves that, that couple of days or a few days. Yeah, that's great. Are we going to well, expect some, something to come out of this? Uh, like any written, written, written just a baby. Just oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, content. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of like feeding it into my newsletter a little bit and then, yeah, I think I'm going to write more about it as, as long form stuff. I mean, I, I definitely want to like, yeah, think about this, but today is really kind of cool. Right. So yeah, how does this translate into what we're going to talk about today? I have, how are no we going to make idea. the transition now? <laughs> okay. Let's see. So what do you think? Hmm. Wow. I was going to go for stability, but I'm not sure that's mm. the right word. Cause crypto okay. is so volatile. <laughs> Oh, you just gave it away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's volatile, but isn't in the long term, from my limited knowledge, it's supposed to be stable? Is it? Isn't it? It wasn't it designed to be that that currency, so it's not like just normal money, uh, fiat money. That's just like it's not stable. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it's it's meant to be that way, but it's so you know it's it's. A, skeptical kind of like pursuit right now. And so we don't know where it's going to land. I think a lot of people are bullish, but there's a lot of people who are mm -hmm. not. And so it's creating this, this volatility in the market, but yeah, you're right. You know, uh, there's actually one thing I want to, so we're bringing on Tim Coyle and Tim is a friend who is spending a lot of time in this space right now. And you actually brought up this idea of 
you're starting to get into crypto. I've been mm-hmm. participating in it for a few years now, but I think, you know, we were like, oh, it would be kind of cool to talk about like, how do you get even get started? And what are the sort of the yep. basics around crypto, Bitcoin and all this fun stuff? So Tim is just kind of immersed in this right now. And I think he's got such a beginner's mindset that'll really help when we're, when we're talking about this. And, and Tim Coyle is a, he joined Rite of Passage with me last summer. And so I've gotten to know him through that, through his writing. And we're also in a, we're in a writer's group that meets in the mornings. And so while, you know, I've... So he's he's just really thoughtful, excited to hear what he has to say about all of this. And so, you know, yeah, I don't really know what else to say, but there's a... Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. So yeah, we have a bunch of questions. And I think we're going to position this conversation mainly for people like myself or people who are just starting to want to get started in crypto. Obviously, we might get into some deeper discussions too, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see where the conversation takes us. Yeah, there's a... I'm selfishly wanting to ask a lot about NFTs and I don't know if it's great if you don't know anything about them because we'll have Tim explain it all. (laughs) Amazing. So he's here. Let's welcome him and start off. Tim. Hey, Tim. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's going well. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Nice to nice to meet you as well. I've I've heard heard lots uh, from Nate about you, about rite of passage and your writing group, and yes, yeah, super excited to chat about crypto today, which is has nothing to do with writing, but <laughs> yeah, or does it? Started with a white paper. There we go. That's a good start. <laughs> yeah, started with a white paper, sent out an email. That email is worth over a trillion dollars today. So. Dang. Wow. That's right. Okay. Can you can you, can you speak to that real quick, Tim? The the trillion dollar threshold. Sure. Yeah. So the market cap is the price of a coin times the total number of coins in circulation. So earlier today we crossed the approximate threshold was somewhere around like fifty three thousand five hundred dollars, and that set it over. A trillion dollar market cap and since then we've gone up to about fifty five thousand dollars so does that blow your mind i mean that's just kind of a crazy thing to have had just had happened today yeah absolutely i saw someone post it took like microsoft 44 years to become a trillion dollar company i forget how many for apple it was 21 for google and now you're looking at like whatever 12, 13 since, since the first block was mined. So 2009. That's nuts. So I, I don't mean to go in on the deep end there uh, really, but I, I just think, you know, what you, we kind of mentioned this before, but Tim, I'm, I've been really impressed with how you, we, you talk about this space. And so we wanted to bring you on and, and kind of ask you kind of throw some softballs at you in a way and think about. I'm sure that there's a, a lot of people, you know, of the probably what Reza, would you say 20 people now listening to this? Uh, well, yeah, I think averaging around 20, 25. So maybe there's, you know, 24 people who maybe don't know much about this stuff, but I, you know, I think, I think what's important is to understand just the basics of, you know, the blockchain, maybe just a little bit of the backstory. And if you can maybe kind of walk us through just some of the the initial, like, plans for what this was all meant to be and where it's kind of taking us. I'd, 
if that's too large of a question, we can break it down. But I'd actually, to, uh, before start. before we get into the basics, I haven't yep. I haven't met met Tim before, so I'm, I'm actually curious about your background and where your interest for crypto comes from. Uh, if you can yes. share a bit uh, on that as well, and then we'll just jump right into the the basics that Nate just uh, brought up. Yeah, so I was a econ major in college, and I think that sometime after college, I thought that. I thought that I didn't know about the money supply and I thought that was a missing link of my education. And actually to backtrack even further growing up, my dad was a coin collector. And so I would always go to like coin shows at, from a really young age. And it dawned on me after college that I didn't really understand how we got from what money was. So what I knew from a young age in these coins to like my economics education and where we're at. And I thought there was a missing link. And I generally think that in the world that I feel like we're all searching for an answer that we're in like, the world doesn't really make sense. And so I was just trying to figure that out. Like what is the lie in the world? And I kept coming back to, banking and trying to understand. And I realized I couldn't comprehend the banking system. It just, it was too complex. And so eventually I learned about Bitcoin and it took a long time to grow, but eventually the more I studied it, the more fascinating it became because you can actually understand what's going on underneath the hood. And while it kind of contains a lot of different subjects, uh, ranging from programming to cryptography and monetary theory amongst many other things, you can start to really understand it. And, you know, it, so that, that's where kind of my, my interest went into it eventually. Is that because it's quite a new establishment in a way? So it, it becomes more understandable or was it built to be understandable as opposed to the financial system that's, or financial institutions that, like you said, are probably intentionally more complex than they need to be. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's programmed. So you can see what it is. It's open source and they solve a, a handful of unique problems. Like, so Bitcoin specifically solves the Byzantine uh, generals problem, which basically is why we get... So it means that we can trust each other without trusting one another. So the protocol itself develops consensus and so I don't need to trust you if I send you Bitcoin. We're just, we're sort of just trusting the protocol because everyone trusts the protocol and therefore that we can trust one another without directly doing so. And so that was a computer science problem that really pulled this thing together. And so early you mentioned it's not, you know, the, say it's like not like writing but you know we're in these writing groups and one thing it's like you're building on the shoulders of others bitcoin is just built on the shoulders of other projects before and so there was several digital cash type projects that were shut down previous to this and the main problem where it was that they were centralized hmm. and so it's not the first first time someone tried to to build something like this but basically that, that Byzantine general's problem that got solved was the thing that allowed it to really manifest. 
but yeah, in, in terms of my background from there, the last couple of years I was in recruitment. So I recruit software engineers for tech companies. So not really anything to do with this, but yeah, this has been sort of an interest of mine for quite some time now. Well, I think what's interesting about new, new ideas, new concepts, new products in the world. When I started web design, you know, just knowing how to code up a website at the time was enough for me to land a job and for me to pursue that because for some reason I was more experienced than, you know, 90% of the other people. And when, when iPhone came out, I designed an app, like I, I didn't have a degree or have to go to college or anything like that. You just did it. And that was enough proof to have, to be able to show people that you're active. And I think what's so interesting about this space and, and, you know, just why we're thinking of you, Tim, is just because you're in it and immersed in it. And that gives you enough leverage to talk about this, you know, more than most people. And so I think that's, what's really cool. You were just kind of touching a little bit on the trust of, of cryptocurrency and, and Bitcoin specifically. And I'm just curious, like, why, why does it have trust? You know, you were talking about the, the Byzantine generals theory, but like, what is that when it applies to blockchain? What is it about blockchain that creates trust? Well, I think that it would be easier just to dive into like what Bitcoin is. Mm -hmm. And so, That's... and then I'll, I'll get to that. So to one thing that there's two Bitcoins, the question that you're asking is related to Bitcoin with a capital B, which is the protocol level. And I'm actually going to start with Bitcoin with a lowercase b, which is the currency or unit. And so the Bitcoin with a lowercase b is a digital decentralized stateless form of money. And essentially you can transact it without trust, right? So you can send it to one another using digital wallets and it acts like email and in your, your wallet that you're holding this acts like email in the sense that I can give you my email address, but I'm not going to give you my password. Hmm. And also I can log into my email from any wallet as long as I have my password. And so I can send it to you over the Bitcoin with a capital B protocol. And I think if I were to, if like for a basic understanding, I would think of this as a book. And so imagine a book, it, it was like a Kindle and it's a digital book and this is your node. And if you're looking at the book, you're looking at all of the transactions. And so the nodes are sort of the observers of the network. And so everyone, you can fire up a node if you want that runs basically the, the history of all the transactions that have ever happened. And you can think of each page as a block. And each block is a collection of all the transactions that made it onto that page. And it's linked to the last page. And so there's a computer network that is trying to solve, solve an algorithm to confirm all those transactions onto that page. And that's what secures the network. And those computers are all scattered all over the world. It actually makes up the most secure computing network in the world. And so 
when you're when you're transacting these the Bitcoin with the lowercase b, you pay a transaction fee, mm-hmm. and that transaction fee goes into the computers that are mining the network, and so they basically get a, a reward. So the the computer that solves the problem, which is approximately every ten minutes, gets a, a reward from the protocol, and it also gets all the fees of the transaction that makes that page, and so there's just a history of all these pages on this ledger that's been going on since 2009. And so what I'm referring to pages are the blocks and the blocks are this blockchain. And who are, who are these computers? Is, are, they, are they the same as like miners? Is that, is that, are they used interchangeably? Yeah, that, so that's what I'm saying. The, the miners are that. And so basically what the miners are is Computers with ASIC chips, which basically the computer chips are generally, you can have a a general chip like you have in your computer, or you can have a specific chip that's meant for something. So there's these chips that are specifically designed to run the Bitcoin protocol. And so there's just server farms that are running this all over the world. And there's companies that have it. There's also individuals that have sometimes that there's also a lot of individuals that they'll pull their resources to create a pool. And so they're then a part of a larger network that hopefully will mine some of these Bitcoins over time. And so one of the things to keep in mind is that when it started, the reward, which is approximately every 10 minutes, was 50 Bitcoin. And then every 210,000 blocks, which is approximately every four years, the reward gets cut in half. And so this is what we refer to as the half of the halfening. And so basically it started at 50 Bitcoin, four years later, it was 25 and 12 and a half. And now it's at six and a quarter or yeah. So the just to clarify, the point being is that there's only 21 million Bitcoins that can be mined. And the further or the more that are mined every 210,000 blocks. Is that right? Roughly. Every time those are encrypted or added to the blockchain, the halfening occurs. And so it's harder to mine the, the further you go along, the more energy that you have to use. And so maybe just speak a little bit to the, Oh, go ahead. So so that's, that's actually not, not the case. So it's just that it's just that the reward is lowered over time. And so the difficulty is actually an interesting problem as well, that that basically the number of miners on the network determines the difficulty of solving the problem. And so and so every two weeks, the protocol automatically takes note of how many miners on the the protocol and they update the difficulty of solving the algorithm to make it so the problem will be solved approximately every 10 minutes, which will keep the 210,000 blocks on approximately the four-year schedule. So it doesn't get mined faster. Got it. Are there more, like, are there miners joining? Are the number of miners increasing as it gets closer to the end? Or are they, are you actually losing it just because it's more difficult, more expensive? you know 
there, there's, so you think about this in hash power and yeah, the hash power was at an all time high this month. Okay. Like so early than this month. So yeah, it's, it's certainly increasing. Okay. And I know we're like diving pretty deep in, I think that the, the problem when it's like, what is a blockchain? Mm-hmm. It, it really takes, there's a lot of subject matter to really unpack it. And if you don't have at least some under the hood knowledge of it, I think that a lot of people look at all the cryptocurrencies and they just group them together. But like, right. as we're, I think it's really important, like this is the Bitcoin blockchain. And if you want to unpack any other cryptocurrency, you have to have the same conversation. That's going to be totally different circumstances. Mm-hmm. And every little uh, variable that we've talked about is like a little lever that you got to play with. And then you got to make sure the game theory makes sense for it to actually continue and have that security. And so I know we're, you know, kind of diving deep quickly, but it's sort of important. Just to kind of bring it back up a level. So if you have not gotten into cryptocurrency yet, you have not purchased Bitcoin yet, where, where is like the simplest place to start? And would it start with reading and trying to gain a lot of knowledge or would it start with just go get some? And I'm curious about your, your take on that. In the past, I would say go read about it. I think that what I would say now is you should do both. Uh, I could tell you a bunch of resources to kind of wrap your head. I think that just generally, I think that if you think about it as buying Bitcoin as investing or saving, that's one thing, but there's another aspect of like, this is a sort of world changing technology. It appears to be with us forever. I certainly think so, but if you were to invest in your education, I would say that you can go spend $20 and see how it works. Like you don't have to go put your life savings yeah. in. So yeah. I think in, with that respect, you know, getting, getting it on cash app and sending it to a Coinbase account and seeing that transaction within yourself would be a useful experiment to play. But besides that, there's a really good paper that BJ Boy, Boya Potty wrote And he basically talks about what money is and what this protocol is and why it's important. And I think that's a really good resource to start with. I think the the white paper is good as well, although it's not necessarily the first thing I would say someone should read. White paper, paper is pretty technical, so it might not be, you know, it might be a little heady. You don't want to really push anyone off. Yeah. There's, there's a a ton of great resources out there now. There's a Sahil Lavingia, you know, of Gumroad. He talks a lot about just start, right. And start first, learn second. And I think that he applies that to building companies and, you know, starting just like putting something online and then you can learn about how to create a company afterwards, but it's, it's very difficult to learn because you're, you're going to put off starting. And I think, you know, what you're kind of saying is, you know, once you start adding Bitcoin into a wallet, you can start to, you can start to make a lot of connections. So like you probably understand why, because of the fees that it's, you're not going to use it for everyday purchases, you know, like you're, you're going to start to see like what the use cases are for it. And it's actually an older, it's the first coin, right? So it's, 
doesn't have as many advantages as you know, more modern coins, but I'm curious, I, we, we were in the same clubhouse room together the other night and we were listening to Mark Andreessen talk. At one point I thought he made really well was that maybe this is just, you know, speculation, but maybe the reason Bitcoin is doing so well is because it hasn't changed. And when you think about building companies and products or, you know, like games, for instance, you always have to come out with a better game. You have to improve it over time for it to consistently sell. And Bitcoin's sort of the opposite. It's, it hasn't changed. <laughs> it's boring and compared to all these other cool things you can do. And I'm kind of curious on your take on that. Yeah, Jeff Be- Bezos says, when, when you look to the future, you want to see what won't change. That way you can make progress on something you can mm-hmm. depend on. So Bitcoin's the most secure computing network in the world. And that's increasingly true over time. A lot of people say that Silicon Valley missed Bitcoin. And there's people like Naval and Mark Andreessen who are in on it. But many other people sort of fell down the fallacy of like Bitcoin came out. Like think about any product you've ever used. A product comes out, it's the MVP. You get feedback and then you improve the product. Mm -hmm. You create new future sets. And so that really never happened. What happened was the narrative changed over time. And so in the white paper, it says it's peer-to-peer cash. And originally when people were getting started, they're trying to set up payments companies and they're trying to get merchants to accept it, but the price was going up so fast. And like you just said, Nate, no one wanted to spend it because it doesn't make sense to spend it because it's appreciating a value so fast. And you, when you think about what money is, it comes down to three different things. It's a store of value, it's a medium of exchange, and then it's a unit of account. But it has to go in that order. And so the Bitcoin community building on top of this, meaning companies surrounding it, they sort of were trying to learn what this technology is as they went. The narrative after the payments went to it was cash. There's many narratives that went around. And eventually, like right now, everyone says it's digital gold. I think that really what's happening is people are just like other investment communities and institutions can relate to that narrative. And the price of gold is in terms of its market cap is 10 times higher. And so it just makes sense to stick to a narrative that other people can sort of believe into the story. But very much, I think that with layer two solutions like Lightning Network that are building on top of this base layer that sort of doesn't change, I think that narrative of digital gold is is sort of small in what Bitcoin can become. But in terms of the base layer, yeah, it doesn't really change that much. It's actually kind of funny. I see, I forget which one of the banks said, you know, they're talking about the difference between the 2017 cycle and now. And they're like, yeah, the underlying technology has really improved. And really, there's only been one upgrade to the Bitcoin protocol since then. Like a, like a thing is called, one of them is called Taproot. And that will be sort of very technical. And it hasn't even been implemented. It's just been like upgraded, but not actually live. Hmm. And so it's the, the, the news headlines are, are just like nonsense. You know, it's like, no, the, the technology hasn't 
changed at all. It's what I would expect from the financial institution jumping into the bandwagon late. Yeah, but but I think like to to Mark's point, I think that the security of the network, if you think of like, we live in a world that has no certainty and it does feel good to have a computing network that we can rely on. That's, you know, that is money. And I think that what a lot of people believe is that this is going to continue to grow in size and eventually it will become a medium of exchange because the price will stop appreciating so quickly. And that would be a much higher price than it is today. And how much does that finite amount of Bitcoin contribute to it security as well? Or it, this, this increase in price not being a bubble that's going to burst uh, at any point in time? So there's, there's going to be 21 million Bitcoin. That's the total in the protocol. And there's a little, I don't know, I think it's around 18.6 million now, something roughly around that number. And so at the end of the year, we'll have mined 90% of the Bitcoin. And then basically there's a long tail that goes into the year 2140, which will be then the last. And so you can imagine a long period of time that you're at like the 99% mind period. So it it trades like a commodity. And so there's not quite like a number, like when you say like, is it a bubble? It's like, it sort of feels like everything's a bubble right now, but all the central banks are printing more money. So there's just more money. And so if this is, this is a monetary network. And so you think of like, what is Facebook worth? Like Facebook is a social graph of human connection across the world and it has like what 3 billion users you know what is what is the ios operating system worth with all the users and development on top of it what is the supply chain system that amazon has and offers and the merchant system on top of it like these are all network effect things and they're worth a ton of money like the bitcoin network is that same network effect for money. And so I think the question is how much money is there? You know, like if, if this keeps going, if people want it, the thing is there's a, there's a limited supply. And so what you're seeing now is that companies are coming in and, or let's take a grayscale trust. So there is this trust. So if you, if you're on the stock exchange, you can buy this, you can buy Grayscale Trust, GBTC. And this trust, all they do is they take money from investors, they buy Bitcoin, but they're never gonna sell the Bitcoin. And so the accredited investors that give them money, they have a six month lockup period and then they can sell the secondary shares on the stock market. And so people like us can buy them. And so the value of their stock trades at sort of next to the price of Bitcoin. But the actual Bitcoins are just accumulating, but they're not selling them. And so there's less total supply on the market to purchase. And so the more people that want them paired with the more people not selling them creates less available 
And so that's why the price is spiking. It's just a supply and demand. And the supply, like the every four years, the introduction going in half, that certainly seems like it's had an effect every halving cycle. But what you're seeing now is you're seeing that you can buy uh, Bitcoin on Cash App. You could buy it on PayPal, which I wouldn't recommend right now because they don't allow you to withdraw it. But nonetheless, <laughs> they, they're selling it. You can buy this GBTC and you can buy it on Coinbase very easily. And the total number of daily buys exceeds the amount that is mined per day. And that, that doesn't even include corporate companies coming in and buying it for their treasury reserve asset. And so there's so many interesting things going on in, in like the space of people wanting to buy Bitcoin. And so you see like the memes online of the hodlers. They're just, they're people just saying like, yeah, I'm not going to sell it to you no matter what you want. And because we won't sell it to you, there's less available. And because more people want it, the price is going to go up. And because we know that, we're definitely not going to sell it to you. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so like, yeah. And so this is like, if you think about the, the short squeeze and the whole Robinhood GameStop situation, this is the same on the monetary network. And so you know, as a year in Canada, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think of your currency, it's like fairly good. Ours, you know, the reserve currency, but like whatever. They're both sort of the elite currencies. Think about the number of people in the world that don't have access to a stable currency. Like all those people, they can buy Bitcoin now. They don't have to trust the government that they already don't trust. And so when you think of the last bear market, the last few years, the price was peaked around $20,000 in December of 2017. And it took a few years to get back up to that price level. But in Argentina, it took about half the time to hit the all-time highs because their currency had so much inflation. And so it's such a powerful technology for different people for different reasons. And that's why when it's like, what can the price go up to? I think it will be a million dollars by the end of the decade. And I don't know what necessarily stops the story. Like I, I just, I don't know where the story ends. I think when you break it down so simply about supply and demand, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the more inputs to Bitcoin and purchasing it, like you were talking about Cash App, PayPal, you know, I don't even know what you think about Robinhood. You can't really transfer, you can't transfer Bitcoin from its wallet out to another wallet. You have to like, I believe, sell it first on Robinhood. But yeah, you know, I think the Argentina thing is really interesting because I, I visited Argentina in 2011 and I went back in 2018 or something like that. And the inflation had dropped or increased, sorry, by like three or 400% in that time. And the, the thing about trust and, and cryptocurrency and how this is, this trust is built in, you, you can see the digital ledger, you know, at any point in time, essentially. And the country was lying to its citizens about the currency valuation. And it was actually, 
like their money was worth something like 40% or 50% less than it was. And they were like, they were hiding that fact. And then it was known and it blew up and you have all of this mistrust in the government, which I think is sort of what brings me around to this idea of like, you know, even if you don't believe in everything that Bitcoin or cryptocurrency has to offer, it's a hedge against the government's like lack of, or the lack of trust you have in the government and essentially. And I think it's a good space to be in just as a, as a hedge. It simply is that. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's true. And then it has varying degrees of truth, depending on where you are in the world. Right. <laughs> like, you know, that's so much more true in, in some places than others. Like I was in Key West the other week and I was talking to the, the housekeeper at the motel we were staying at. And she was saying that she's been here from Cuba for uh, 20 or 30 years and her brother never made it. And she's trying to send him money and there's no real way to send money because the Western union is shut down and there's ways of buying food uh, where you can sort of prepay it and they'll deliver it. And she was saying that her brother gets the food that she delivers and half of it's stolen out of it. And, and so when you, and, and she's basically saying there isn't a lot of food or medical supplies when you're in there. And like, that's a horrible problem. Like you think about what's going on in Texas with no power this week. Like imagine living in a country where your, your currency inflates all the time and like the value of whatever you have. Some days you wake up and you're just, it's not worth anything. There is worth significantly less. I would say that's a much worse problem that affects every, every part of your life. And that happens all over the world all the time. Wanted to come, we talked, we touched on this, like the storing methods and principles of, of Bitcoin. I think we briefly talked about it, but we didn't really dive deep. So I've only recently kind of learned partially from, from Nate and a few other friends about it. So can you touch on uh, the differences between sort of what you mentioned buying on um, Coinbase versus like cold storage and what are sort of the benefits of doing that for like potentially larger amounts? Yeah. So Think about if you have cash, like that's your cash. As long as you can secure it, if you have cash under your mattress, like that's yours. If you put cash in the bank, that's the bank's cash. They owe you that cash. And there's been plenty of runs on banks and, you know, you've sort of given them. So having your private key, and I'll, and I'll get into like what that means and, and sort of how to go about this, but having your private key, so that email address, if, you, if you're securing it at home on, on your, like in, in cold storage versus using one of these, like a company like Coinbase or leaving it on Cash App, you're sort of putting it in the bank. And so I think that's one of the major differences. And so this technology allows you to essentially, you know, it's a store of value, but it also allows you to move your value across space. That's another interesting thing about this. So like, if you were to try to carry tens of thousands of dollars, if you were moving, 
like you would need to move it in a bank account. Like you wouldn't want to carry all your money in your backpack as you go to the airport. Like that would be sketchy, be scary that someone would just take it. And so you can think about it now, like you, the concept of being your own bank, you now have that ability to set up this wallet and secure it yourself. And so the differences, like I said, the thing about PayPal, and this is true of Robinhood, although this week they said that they were going to allow for withdrawals soon, but they don't currently. Hmm. PayPal and Robinhood, you can buy Bitcoin on there, but you can't withdraw it. So you don't have, you don't have the ability to, to move it anywhere. If you buy it on Coinbase, they essentially have your Bitcoin. And now you still have the access to move it around. And so you can move it into your personal wallet very quickly, but you're, it's still the same thing as if you put cash in your bank account. And if something so, happens to them, it's basically gone, right? If, if they get hacked or something, that's your Bitcoin going with them, going down with them. Yeah, I, w- I will say though, on the security aspect, I don't want to like jab at Coinbase or Gemini too hard. They do, they've, and Kraken as well. They've, they've never been hacked, th- those like major US exchanges. And apparently they have phenomenal security that's been improving over the years. So it's probably safe for that. The risk is more probably if you, if your account gets hacked, like if your personal mm. privacy isn't up to date and like someone gets your, password to coinbase and they just take it that's probably that's more a really likely. Good point, yeah yeah that's a more likely scenario but to the point i think getting at the coins are not insured i think they have some insurances now i don't know what they specifically cover so like for example there's these things called stable coins and i know that gemini has an insurance policy on those i don't know if it covers the bitcoin or other crypto assets in general but generally, I would think that the way I see it is if your cryptocurrency is on one of these exchanges, you can just imagine that if it disappears for any reason, that it's gone. It's sort of the risk profile. And so the other risk you have to think about is if you self-custody it and you lose it, it's gone. And so, you know, if you can't keep your car keys, like maybe the risk is lower to leave it on Coinbase. You know, there's trade-offs for everything. So the way you set up a wallet is you have a recovery phrase mm-hmm. and it's either 12 or 24 words. And there's specific words. There's, it's called the BIP39. And basically there's a long list of words and each of the words, the first four letters are unique. And so you can basically have a passphrase of these and that turns into your private key. And so what I'm saying is the, pri- the this passphrase, if you lose this, then everything's gone. Right, exactly, yeah. And so there's- Which de- is your private key, just yeah. to be clear. Yeah, and, and so there's these devices like Cold Card and Trezor and Ledger that you can put that onto. And so I think to your point, that was true, is if you lose that, mm-hmm. Yeah, if you have your passphrase, yeah, you can just go get another one and put it on. That's not a problem. And so it depends on what we're talking about losing. If you're yep. talking about physically losing your hardware wallet, yeah, that's not really an issue because no one has the password to get onto it except you and you still have your passwords. So now you just need to get another one. Like 
technically you don't even need one of those as long as you have your passphrase, but yeah, you should have one of those. And so, and so then, yeah, so that, that, that's basically the difference of having it secured on one of these devices versus having it at an exchange or one of these other companies. Just wanted to touch on real quick. I, I think it might be helpful when you set up an account, whether it's at Coinbase or whether you buy a ledger, a, a cold storage wallet, you essentially are given a public key and a private key. Is that correct? Yeah. And so public keys are what you would use to exchange money between a friend or a stranger. Private key is, is what you were talking about, the recovery word phrase that allows you to take that money with you wherever you want. Yeah. Well, so you don't, you don't always have a private key if you have it at like Coinbase because you're just logging into Coinbase. Mm, okay. And so you like the private key is the, is funds being on there, but they're still on a, like a Bitcoin address. And so you can transfer that to your own. Right. And so when you open up, say, say you take up any wallet, when you create a new wallet, so you can create as many wallets as you want. They're free, you just sort of create them. And then in a wallet, you can have as many addresses, but for the wallet is where you have the private key and public key. And that's where you need to. Whereas like on Coinbase, you're just gonna have your login like you do for any website or application. So Bitcoin being the sort of the, the primary and the first, first one of these cryptocurrencies, and you, you touched on all the other ones that, that were established afterwards. How would you go about sort of tracking the growth or decline of all these other cryptocurrencies and sort of diversifying your investment in them? Or uh, would you say Bitcoin is probably the most trustworthy one if you're kind of starting off is the best place to start and go all in 100% with that? I only have Bitcoin. I'll say that first, okay. just to be clear. I think that the rest of the market is very interesting. So if you, if you go online and you go to any like Bitcoin anything where there's just sort of like uh, Bitcoin maximalist, like they're going to hate on everything. I was in a, in a club, a clubhouse room as well. And that's exactly the impression I got as well. Yeah. <laughs> I was convinced by the end of it that I should only be invested in Bitcoin. Yeah. So I think there's merit to that. Like they have, there's a lot of good reason that what they say is true. Now, does that mean that the price won't appreciate in other things faster than Bitcoin? No, it's just that like the problems that are being solved in these protocols and like the need for a token for the specific projects that they're working on, there's just like a lot to think about in all of these things. And when you start to think about buying these, like they're like financialized communities and so you're dealing with traders. You're dealing with people that understand crypto cycles and you know the Ethereum price follows the Bitcoin price. And after that, all the other assets go up and the other assets are have smaller liquidity. So when they start to fall, they fall faster. And so when you think about your time frame on these, there's a lot of like a, a trading mentality that goes into, and you're sort of playing a whole different game at that point. Hmm. I'm not convinced on really anything outside of Bitcoin. With that being said, I think there's a ton of innovation and I hope that we get 
you know, some sort of web three decentralized internet. I think that a lot of the work being done today on these other protocols are going to be the beginning of a different version of the internet. With that being said, I don't necessarily believe that anything out here is definitely going to be around say 10 years from now. But within that, I think that some of the concepts aren't gonna go away. So if you look at like decentralized finance, there's all sorts of interesting lending markets that are being um, created and governance around this. And it's absolutely fascinating. People make a ton of money on it. There's a lot of money locked up in these protocols. I think it's an interesting concept. Like I said, don't think it's gonna go away. That doesn't mean that any of them are necessarily gonna survive or they're all gonna stay on Ethereum's chain. Like Ethereum has a lot of scalability issues. You have, like the one way to think about these, like say the Bitcoin ecosystem is that Bitcoin is very decentralized. When you think about decentralization, you have to think about it in different um, axioms. So one would be like, how many miners are there? What is the geography of the miners? What is the distribution of the mining pools? How many nodes are there? Where are those nodes? How many wallet addresses are there? So you have all these different ways that you can define what decentralization is. And then on top of that, you have all these companies like Coinbase and Gemini exchanges. You have products that are doing like, instead of cash back on a credit card or a debit card, you have Bitcoin back or Bitcoin back on purchases and stuff like this. So you have all these centralized companies that are using the Bitcoin protocol. Now in the Ethereum and basically in the smart contract side of this, the layer one solutions are more centralized, but the applications on top of them are more decentralized. And I, I think it, that's really interesting, but it, it does, you have to draw back to the concerns of the, the layer one of if it's really centralized, like what does that mean for the security of the protocol? And so just like in the beginning part of the conversation, we were talking about sort of the, like the intricacies of the different layers of the network, you have to play the same game theory on each of these protocols and applications. And, you know, it's, it's sort of an endlessly fascinating space. It's, it's growing. I don't think anyone understands all of it because of the pace that it's growing in different directions, but so to get back to your question of like, would I put money into other ones? I think that's a personal question. I think that you should start with Bitcoin and understand it. I think what I said about buying Bitcoin holds true for anything. So yeah, if you want to go play with Ethereum, I think that you should go play with Ethereum. You know, like there is interesting stuff being built. I just don't know what lasts and what ideas ideas come out of it. I think a lot of some of the ideas from the projects will outlast the projects themselves. And, and you know, 10 years from now, we'll pro probably see a decentralized finance application. Is it the one that's going today, like Uniswap or Aave or PancakeSwap? You know, these crazy names, or it'll be something else. Like, I, I don't I know. It's PancakeSwap. <laughs>
what what does it take to start start one of these and kind of can any can anybody just start like a block blockchain as a, how, how you would phrase it can it can start start that and sort of bring on investors and make it more publicly available so this is this is really interesting this didn't, good... didn't mean to open another can of worms but <laughs> i was just but curious about it. You, you sort of did but it's it's a great question it's a really good question and so years ago in the Bitcoin community, there was this, there was a division. You could think of it as like a civil war in the community, which is that there is a group that wanted the block size to be larger. So it's just sort of technical. We could not go into that, but essentially that they wanted a different feature set. And so all you have to do, because it's an open source code, is just fork it. Like you can just copy the project and move. And so at some point there is Bitcoin and there's Bitcoin cash. And so people were calling Bitcoin cash, Bitcoin, and everyone was calling Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And they're sort of fighting for this saying, which one's real. But ultimately the one that forked off of it, it didn't have the community. Many people just sold them because essentially like you can airdrop so if you do this fork, you can say that, okay, I'm creating a new coin based on the, this current chain that we have. And everyone with the last chain gets an equal distribution to this chain. And then we're going to do something different with the code base. But that doesn't mean it's going to continue because you don't have the mining equipment backing it, the number of nodes operating it, and the liquidity on the network. So people actually trading it so if everyone just sells it immediately, then the price decreases and then the value of the network is lower. And so that's one way. Another way you could just, you know, create a blockchain by coding it up into existence and, and sort of starting from scratch. But so, that, you know, you, you can start your own, but, I, but you need to bootstrap the community and the finances and the security of the network by the who is mining it. And then there's also like Bitcoin runs on a proof of work, these miners. And there's other people trying to do other things like proof of stake. And, you know, Ethereum's been trying to switch from proof of work to proof of stake. And they say like, it will increase the scalability so you can have more transactions at any given time. But like right now the gas fees, which is the cost of the transaction is going very high. And so it's just unclear that that's going to work. And that's what I mean, but like, does the smart contract concept continue? Well, I think that it will outlive Ethereum, whether Ethereum lasts or not, because it's incredibly interesting and it draws everyone's attention. I believe in you know human innovation. And if you put a bunch of technologists together and they want something that they'll probably eventually get it. To your point, I think Ethereum, because it's been around so long and there is a strong community behind it, that even if something new comes along, it's probably, it's not going to probably die right away either. Like it'll persist at, in some way into the future, partly because of the, the community behind it. So real quick, there was a lot of scams, you know, with, you know, a few years ago, especially, and could you kind of like explain, like, is, is it, 
because you can copy and you can create a, a new coin so easily that there, there was like no vetting going on and people were trying to draw money in. And is that kind of where a lot of the scams took place? And how did that kind of work? Yeah. So if you think of how you bootstrap these communities, they had what's called ICOs and that's basically just like a crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. And then eventually the blockchain will be released. But like I said, you can just copy the code base. And so people are just saying like, we're going to make cannabis for the blockchain mm-hmm. and like, you know, make some use case of like why the token will be in all dispensaries. And it's going to be the greatest thing ever because it's on the blockchain. And there was just so much hype and it was basically a retail driven market. So if you imagine like the wall street bets, Robin hood scenario, like there's everyone in crypto that just had no idea. They weren't angel investors and everything was driving up in price and people are just FOMOing into everything and making a ton of money. And then something would be a scam and then, you'd lose all the money on that. And that was kind of a theme, but generally the, the, any protocol that starts has to start somewhere. And so the community comes before the release of the token. And so even like the Bitcoin white paper was sent out to a group of cryptographers on October 31st, 2008. And they're like, this is the idea. And then on January 3rd, 2009, it started. And so there was a period of time that was like, hey, we're going to do this, but like, I can't do it alone. You need multiple people. And so when new projects start, there has to be some sort of funding. I mean, there technically doesn't have to be any funding. You would just need developers to develop it, but eventually it has to be released. And then you have to remove the centralization as fast as possible. So there's not like an attack on the network. Because if someone, for example, owns more than 51% of the mining and proof of work, they can, there's all sorts of attacks they can do on it. And so you need certain degrees of decentralization. And the other thing is like, there's sort of protocols that out that are pretty centralized. And I don't like, that's no different than relying on Amazon in some respects. That's an oversimplification. So Tim, something that has been on my mind a lot lately, and you know, you and I have chatted about this a little bit, but I'm curious what you think about NFTs in the digital art space. And does that excite you? Or is that just feeling like it's getting a lot of hype right now, you know, for no good reason? I, you know, I'm just kind of curious about your take on this and, and maybe just explain what, what NFTs are. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll explain it. And I, I, I will say they're super interesting. Like I said, I think that, I think that most of what's in this space is incredibly interested. That's different of where I put my money, but there is a GIF that went viral. I wasn't aware of it until yesterday, but apparently it's been around some cap GIF and someone tokenized it, put it on an NFT like yesterday. And it's, it's auctioned off for like half a million dollars right now. What? I, I don't know. Like, I don't have that much money to like buy a gift for half a million dollars, but you can argue like this is one of the first famous gifts, like memes, cultural point, fine. But 
that seems very expensive. I think that it, what's going to happen in that market is most of it is not going to be worth anything, but generally coming down to tokenizing art. Yeah, I think, I think that's like a fair concept. I think that the one interesting part is that you can program future sales as commissions to the artist. And so this is phenomenal if you can get it, get it working. But again, sort of circling back to other concerns is like, what is the security of the underlying blockchain and how long is it gonna be around? Is this a centralized blockchain? Which is sort of no different than if Amazon controlled the blockchain, but they couldn't delete any information on it. Seems like an upgrade, but nonetheless, what if they were shut down, right? And so that's one concern. The second is like gas fees. So, you know, we're kind of diving this, but like, what would it cost you to put NFTs? It's like, well, some you can start an account and just do one transaction, but at the time it was like $70. And so I'm thinking if you sell a piece of art that whoever's buying it needs to pay a $70 transaction fee. So when you swipe a credit card, like what is the percent that's being taken for the merchant? Like 1%, 2%, something like that, yeah. three maybe. And so if in my eyes, if, if $70 represents more than that percent, like it's not really a feasible option. So those are some of my concerns, but nonetheless, I mean, trading cards and collectibles are, that's a very real market and they represent scarcity. And so I think that, you know, there is going to be a lot of opportunity and we're going to see this concept continually to manifest in ways that are sort of unimaginable right now. Let's just go back the the meme example that you were discussing. So just to kind of clarify what an NFT is and what are the benefits to that meme being tokenized? I'm just kind of curious if you can explain that. Like, what does that mean, you know, to the, to the, to the new owner of this? So let's just go back to what NFT means. It means it's a non-fungible token, which just means it's unique. And so if you think back to Bitcoin, Bitcoin's fungible. So my Bitcoin or your Bitcoin are worth the same. They're just like, I could trade you one. You'll accept that one. You'll accept this one. The dollar are, is fungible. Like exactly. just US dollar. Yep. Yeah. And so that's an important concept in money. Now in art, imagine like the Mona Lisa is unique, but a picture of the Mona Lisa is not. And so the NFTs is basically like you're putting it on the blockchain, you know, you can see the artist, if you know the artist's account and they publish it, then you can see the lineage and you can see that this was the first one from the person. And so you have the authenticity, you have the scarcity, you can say how many of them are in total and you can record all that and you can record the lineage. So you can imagine interesting things of like famous people along the way owned this like those could all be interesting ways i think what's interesting is when you think about the gaming space though i'm not a gamer but i can imagine if you're in virtual worlds and you have this nft in like your section of this world like that that has to have some value so there is an interaction i think that we're going to see in like what is what are games what is the internet the metaverse like what is like it could I put this NFT 
hosting in this game or can I put it on a TV in my living room or mm -hmm. at a museum, you know, et cetera. Like where, where can this thing live? But like, what is the value of it? I don't know. What do people value art? Well, I think that's interesting because like the, I've been reading and writing about this just a little bit. Pomp wrote a great article on the art industry. The traditional art industry is a $60 billion market and digital art is 10 million. And the traditional art market has been increasing in like it's actually been beating wall street if you invest in art you know generally speaking and so because digital art has so many interesting use cases like you said you could you could put it in a virtual environment and host it in a virtual gallery you can keep the original on your phone and carry it with you and let's say it was a picture of a painting and you could print out the the copy to put on your wall but you'd have the original on your phone and carry it with you like you do you know bitcoin i think it's just a lot of interesting use cases for digital art to succeed um, and grow and i think that's what makes nfts to me so interesting is that it's such a nascent space at the moment and there's so much room to grow even though it's complete speculation and people are tokenizing meme get you know memes and who knows where that's going to go but yeah it's yeah. so fascinating yeah i think there's a bifurcation of like an artist with a following and me, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, I, I'd imagine you'll see more memes being NFTs. And I think that there'll be a period of time that people buy them. And I think that the half-life of the value will decrease a lot. And at the same time, if you have a, fam a famous artist, I think the value of theirs will hold as long as the value, as long as the security of the underlying blockchain is still secure. Yeah, like if Jay-Z made one NFT today, I think it would go for a lot of money. Yeah. So just to, the, the confusing thing in my mind is if, if, if a GIF can be an NFT, a tokenized piece of art that's authenticated on the blockchain, it, it's a GIF though in the end and it can be copied and people can use the GIF around the web you know, in parallel to this, you know, authenticated one being, and so like that, to me, it's like, well, where's the value if everybody can still own it, you know, even if one's technically the original, which I, I don't really fully understand, but you can, I don't know, can you clarify that? Or is that just as confusing to you? No, I think you nailed it. <laughs> that's the other side. That's where I get like, okay. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, like, <laughs> so, it's, a but, it's a copy, right? And yeah, that's where I don't like, I don't really, I wouldn't buy one. And, yeah. and that's, that's different to say that it won't be valuable. Like I said, like, I think if, I think if Elon, you know, another person, if like he made some ridiculous meme, like at some turning point, you know, like Tesla bought a billion and a half dollars Bitcoin the other week, you know, imagine the next thing he does, right? So imagine the first time someone lands, on Mars, a human from SpaceX. And imagine Elon makes a meme and the original is an NFT. Well, of course the meme will get taken from, you know, away from NFTs, but that NFT will certainly be sold for mm -hmm. a ridiculous amount of money and people will want it because it will be, you know, the first time humans went to another planet. Right. And so I think both of those can be true, but like, 
I think if I posted the exact same meme that <laughs> I don't think it matters. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I don't think that the whole space is all worked out and whatnot. I think it's in the nascent phase of this, but if the internet is like reorganized, you know, if all these protocols, we eventually get decentralized media and, you know, we move like, like Bitcoin is adopted and you sort of solve some scalability and security issues with smart contract protocols. I don't know, maybe these things have a real value someday and we work out some of the kinks and by we, I mean them. Yeah. Tim Stan with Bitcoin. I just think that you have to look at it a risk reward, right? So like everyone comes into this space and all of a sudden they think that they're an angel investor and, you know, everything goes to the moon. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, like I, I get it. It's a bull market and uh, smaller coins go up faster and a lot of people get rich in these times. They also, you know, a lot of traders still have a large Bitcoin position and they think about, can I beat the appreciation of Bitcoin because I'm trading into Bitcoin either way? And so when you trade something, you have to think about the capital gains and you have to think about is what you're buying going up in appreciation against Bitcoin as sort of like mm-hmm. the digital standard. And I don't think it's as easy as people make it out to be. And so the majority of people, I would say, lose money doing this. And then a few people get really rich. And then there's, yeah, certainly people that just sort of believe in Ethereum or anything else and are legitimately trying to make it work. But the, the thing about society now is we're moving into a period that everything's financialized. And so you can bet on who's going to be the president. You can bet on, you know, you can gamble on anything and gambling is going to move into these markets and where like, you're just going to be able to bet on what you think is true. You know, and I think that's like a difference in the world today. As we financialize everything, it, it opens up these markets more broadly, which is sort of what the decentralized finance space is doing. And that's why I think like they're super interesting, like the ability to 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 get a loan based on your collateralized assets with people that you don't know, like that's intriguing. But I think that there's a lot of risk underneath it that people don't price in. And when they think about the risk reward of buying like Ethereum over Bitcoin, they don't think about the, the other layers of like, what is the risk? And just because your reward is higher doesn't mean your risk reward was a safe bet. And that's something to think about when you think of like when you, if a new protocol launches and you, and you invest in it, the odds of it going up at a faster rate than Bitcoin is certainly there because there's low liquidity, but you're angel investing. And so if you come in and you're like, Oh, I'm like now a crypto angel investor slash trader day trader. Nonetheless, I would just ask, is that your skill set? And, you know, I think you can learn anything, but I, I don't think people price that in. Hmm. That is a really great place to end. I think, I think it, it's a lot in a lot of ways, speculation and it's none of this is financial advice, <laughs> by the way, but Tim, I, I, I just want to thank you for being here. And this was so much fun. I feel like I could 
we need to do like a whole another like four or five episodes of this, but where can people find you or reach out to you if they have questions about, about this stuff? Yeah. Just find me on Twitter, Tim underscore coil. Yeah. That'd be, nice. that'd be the best place. Some other resources. Cause I know I just said like the one article, yeah. which I believe is titled the bullish case case for Bitcoin. That'd be one of them. Another one would be go to casebitcoin.com. And it does a really good job of just highlighting like new institutional investors. It says like the price of it, the market cap, just high quality content. That's a good place to just get an overview of what's going on in Bitcoin specifically. Read the Bitcoin white paper. If you want to understand like the idea of Bitcoin being the reserve currency and how it would get there, read the Bitcoin standard. If you want to understand like between Bitcoin technology and finance, highly recommend Pomp's daily letter, his newsletter. That's really good. I think that there's a lot to understand, you know, Mm -hmm. and I don't think anyone understands it fully. It's like the, the most interesting thing about crypto is it combines so many fields that it's why people just get trapped in. It's like black hole. Like, like, it's just, you just learn so much and you're constantly getting the perspectives of other people. And because everyone has a different perspective, you always have to try to understand like, where are other people in relation to this? And what do they know that I don't? And so you have to cover law and trading and investing and computer programming and, and it just goes on and on. So those are some resources that I think that would help out and yeah, go. Go uh, buy a small amount for education, you know, not investment advice and, and see how, see how it works. Love it. It's awesome. I certainly learned a lot today. Thanks so much, Tim. And thanks for, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Thanks, Tim.